I am humbled by this moment, standing at the 500 marker and all that that represents for us here today. And to God be the glory for this time that we can share this in his presence. We are making history today at Asbury, 500 years ago. On this date, Martin Luther was standing before his church in the Saxon town of Wittenberg, posting his 95 theses. And they would become the herald heard round the church and the world of that day. Signaling a new era was at hand, the day of God's appearing. It was made possible by Luther's recovery of the living word of God through his study of the scripture and through his own walk of faith. He articulated this message as part of his protest against the prevailing practices of his church in linking salvation to the purchase of certificates of indulgence. This practice effectively was tying salvation to the church's quest, he thought, for worldly influence and glory. His protest marked the beginning of a long struggle which would result in the Protestant Reformation. Luther's unparalleled impact on modern Christianity prompts us to ask this question this morning. Is it true that he was history's first modern man? It's unquestioned that modern humanity has been profoundly impacted by his message. How is this so? Uh, and how it is so is a question long debated. But uh, I would like to begin by inviting you to join me. Uh, we, uh, for this moment, we'll just leave uh, this place uh, and go from the Lexington Airport uh, and we'll board a flight to Germany. Uh, you see, in this moment, it's the Luther year, 1983, the 500th anniversary of the birth of Martin Luther. The barriers of the repressive Cold War era had been about to recede. And uh, once there, we deplane and we take ourselves across the border, uh, the Great Berlin Wall, as it was called, and we see that world that was divided geopolitically on two sides by such strong lines. And as soon as we cross over, we are entering the German Democratic Republic, a unit of the Soviet Union at that time. And uh, we are looking about us on the streets and we see that there are banners everywhere proclaiming, of all things, Martin Luther in that place. But alongside him is the unlikely face of Karl Marx. And they seem to be going hand in glove. And, and so we go to the childhood home of Luther. And the woman there, pleasant lady, is giving us the written script she was handed from the government as to what to say properly about Luther's life. It never mentions God or Christ. But after she finishes, she looks over toward us and sort of with a twinkle in her eye, she says, I want to tell you how Luther has meant to us that our family is still serving the same Jesus Christ that he introduced to us five centuries ago. And she said that in all the situation of her day and the danger that that might represent to her. And we asked ourselves, uh, which version of Luther that we are presented with here is the genuine article. Well, we discovered soon that Luther is being uh, politicized and interpreted in all sorts of ways. Uh, in the Nazi era, state propaganda had first reconstructed him as a model Deutscher Christen of the modern age. With the arrival of the Soviets after the war, he became drastically, drastically reconstructed as a uh, voice of the working people, the militant workers class, and so it goes on. 
And it seems modernity and the postmodernity which follows uh, have each tried to identify and claim the legacy of Luther for themselves, ranging all the way from the divine to the demonic and all points between. Well, there's more to the story of my, our encounter with uh, this museum host in Luther's hometown, but uh, let's just take leave of her for the moment and perhaps save more for later on that note. But here we're identifying a definition, modernity. And for this, we turn to a notable treatment of that topic in a study published in the early post-war era by Richard Weaver in Ideas Have Consequences. Weaver identified as a main problem of modernity its sense of malaise, its sense of cultural malaise, the perception of Western culture as being inherently hollow, uh, marked by a void of moral authority. The author traced the source of this problem to the triumph of nominalism in the 14th century in Western culture. It was an age when the denial of universals carried with it the denial of everything transcending experience. This included ultimate truths of Christian belief. Whereas nature had formerly been regarded as imitating a transcendent model, says Weaver, with the triumph of nominalism, nature would be looked upon as containing its own principles of behavior. Defects of nature cannot be known as suffering from any overarching uh, evil. In time, nominalists would attribute defects to ignorance or social defect. So much for the Augustinian doctrine of original sin. So our question is, did Luther really represent the forerunner of a long line of modernist thinking? Uh, or would he instead be offering us a strong rebuke to this slippery slope? Uh, my answer to the former is not really, and to the latter, emphatically yes. He was offering a rebuke, and I, I hope to show you this. The initial evidence favoring uh, Luther's uh, identification uh, with this position was his work in the Erfurt University program as a student. And uh, there he was in a, in a university which was steeped in the nominalist philosophy of that day. It was known as a Via Moderna school. And so everywhere he went along the course of his day in classes in the hallways, it seems as he would later say in his Tischreden, that I was being confronted with this slogan in Latin, facre quod in se est, which means do that which lies within you, which means in short, do your best. I guess we would put it something like God helps those who help themselves. But uh, that did not quite take for Luther. His exposure to this via moderna uh, left something to be desired. Its argument did not address his acute spiritual crisis. He was wondering how could he ever know when he had arrived at this point where he was doing his best. Could he, could he not always do more? So here was the theological basis for his Anfechtungen, his moments of despair, which were only dispelled finally by his illumination through his rereading of Paul's epistles. His critique of the nominalists at Erfurt was the intellectual expression of his existential struggle for faith. The biblical grounding for his anthropology would be law and gospel. Well, Luther's first response to this nominalist challenge was a rather bleak one. His Anfechtung, uh, almost untranslatable to mean mortal despair, uh, suggests that he had experienced God up to this point only as a dreaded judge, a wrathful deity, and Christ is the stern instrument of the Father's judgment. 
this darker side of Luther, would align him with an apocalyptic worldview as well that's contrary to modern optimism and more akin to a prolonged state of penitential despair. A seeker without hope of peace with God, he remained a tormented human being, putting on a brave front, even as he now prepared to walk into the classroom at the school at Wittenberg where, according to his Augustinian monastic orders, he was assigned to teach from biblical studies. And uh, his despair of finding peace of soul with God uh, was even running through this experience because he was in desperation to find answers through the Holy Bible to his own illness. So this, con this uh, condition was persisting. And on this particular occasion, he was lecturing from Romans, the text we read from this morning, chapter 1, and especially verses 16 and 17 which came to his attention. It was at that point that he found both his despair and his illumination highlighted. Please note, from his reading of the Vulgate text of that day, the Latin text, which had been the only one available, he understood the text as saying, in the gospel, a righteousness from God is required, demanded of us, a rendering which had compounded his sense of God's dread of judgment, only deepening his sense of infection. So providentially, he then procures a copy of the recently published Koine Greek text of the scriptures, which had been provided him thanks to the renowned Renaissance humanist Erasmus, whose work had made it possible. And this text in Greek now began to be his uh, source. And as he turned to the same text here, he discovered to his amazement that the text says that the righteousness of God is not required, but is revealed, as we heard this morning is made available to us uh, from faith to faith, first to last. The good news in this moment of truth was the discovery that this dreaded justitia dei, this justice of God, was not an impossible requirement God was placing upon us. Instead, it was the unbelievable, undeserved gift of life by the one who holds our salvation in his hands. Here was the exegetical basis for his spiritual illumination as well as for the reformation which would follow. And here was the moment which would lead him to his main theme of the theology of the cross, the basis for a new theological anthropology that in turn would present a challenge to the dominance of that via moderna to whom he had been uh, exposed in his school years. Our concern is to fathom from this reformer's perspective, what does it now mean to be a human being for us, who is also a Christian. And uh, if not a modern view, in Luther's sense, pray what might it be. It's also not a Roman Catholic position. The biblical assertions stand over against the Roman view of that day as righteousness is something accrued through a works of merit by the penitent. The ability to distinguish correctly law from gospel, says the Tubing and Luther scholar Oswald Bayer is what makes a theologian a theologian. This biblical authority is vital for Luther's understanding, a theological man. Humanity quorum Deo, that is before God, Luther stated, uh, was this breakthrough that shifts us from the law to the gospel. The law is for the old Adam, he says, the gospel is for my despairing, terrified conscience to receive. The clearest explication of Luther's uh, post-illumination position appears in a seminal treatise of 
occur, uh, which comes uh, into print in 1520, The Freedom of a Christian. His treatise here appears as the virtual Magna Carta of the Protestant Reformation. Here he grounds the identity of a Christian in a crisp pair of dialectical propositions. Luther proceeds by confessing that he wants to make the way smoother for the unlearned. For only them do I serve. And so I shall set down two propositions concerning the freedom and the bondage of the spirit. First, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord overall, subject to none. And second, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant to all, subject to all. And then he gives this afterthought. These two themes seem to contradict one another. If they should be found to fit together, they would serve our purpose beautifully. But they are Paul's statements. For he says, though I am free of all men, I have made myself a slave to all, 1 Corinthians 9. And so just how far did Luther go in fitting these two contradictory propositions together? He does so by articulating a group of polarity statements, which correlate with these two. Each comes in a pair intended to clarify one aspect of the mystery of the human person existing before God. They appear in various texts produced during this critical period of his theological formation. The new humanity they embody is the result of what Miroslav Wolf has once called a love exchange between Christ's righteousness and my unrighteousness, initiated and actualized through his atoning death on the cross and conveyed to you and to me by faith in God's promise, Romans 1.17. The first pair appears in the earliest public exposition of his thought. Uh, it's the distinction between the theology of of the cross on the one side and the theology of glory on the other. The former locates where faith meets God in his redemptive love, the cross, while the latter denotes this triumphal, self-justifying way the flesh behaves toward God out of a sense of superiority uh, even to God himself. We Christians, he says, are not to become theologians of glory. We are to become theologians of the cross. We are Christians who do not call what is bad good and what is good bad, but rather the theologians of the cross say what a thing is. Theological man for Luther is not the person who exists before, is the person who exists before God, but only as an undeserved gift, not on his own strength. The second pair is found in his lectures on Galatians. And here he distinguishes between the righteousness of faith as a not passive, but a, not, not active, but a, right, a passive righteousness. The afflicted conscience has no remedy against desperation and death unless it takes hold of the promise of grace freely offered in Christ, a passive righteousness of faith, which is Christian righteousness. And simultaneously, I abandon myself of all attempts of active righteousness, both of my own and of God's law. Luther's view of our new humanity is viewed through the lens of these polar statements because they convey to him a sense of the divine mystery that's inherent in the message of the cross that's beyond the reach of cognitive analysis. He also finds help in conveying the meaning of this mystery by his appeal to metaphor as well as to polarities. And to this end, he offers these examples in Freedom of a Christian. First, he gives the example of the blacksmith's forge this metaphor is selected to heighten the wonder surrounding that moment of interface which actualizes the exchange. Uh, Luther writes, what is unreachable by the command is made easy for you through faith. 
At the moment when the Word, who is Jesus Christ in the flesh, whom we receive by faith, imparts its qualities to the soul, in that moment it is just as the heated iron glows like fire in the blacksmith's forge because of the union of fire with it. Then it is clear the Christian is he who has all his needs met with faith. Second, a wedding. Now this metaphor depicts the relationship of Savior with sinner as conceptualized through the bridal imagery. In that union, the believing soul can boast of what Christ has as though it were his own. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul, that is, you or I, is full of sins, death, and damnation. Now, let faith come between these two. And then let sins, death, and damnation become Christ's, while grace, life, and salvation will become ours. Luther refers to this amazing exchange as the frulike wechsel, the blessed exchange, uh, that has, as, as the one which takes place in a wedding union. Now, in each of these polarities and metaphors, we find Luther is driving home to us again and again what it means for humans of all stations in life and service to, some, to serve as free lords, reigning over sin, over death, over the devil, with Christ. And when it comes then to the second proposition in his definition of a Christian, stating we are not to be servants to all, we are also to be servants to all as well as lords over all through the grace of Christ. And when he gets to this one, he uses another metaphor. At this point, it's a fountain. That is, faith in Christ, who intensely loves me, now spontaneously overflows as the quellente Liebe, the overflowing of love for my neighbor. Here is the vehicle to articulate how faith becomes active in love. Turning the tables on the structured society of his day, Luther is saying, insofar as a person is free, she is obliged to do no works for salvation, but insofar as she is a servant, she does all kinds of works. The highest expression of the person of faith, theological man, is when we become that one whose sole occupation is so to serve God joyfully and without thought of gain, in love without constraint. We become priests as well as kings with Christ, a royal priesthood and servanthood now becomes our preferred role as Christian. The most sacred step taken by the person of faith, says Luther to us today, is when we reach out to the least of these creatures that God has put before us and the realization that it is there that they are most wondrously embracing their Lord himself. Luther describes this mystery in these terms in The Freedom of a Christian. I'll just read a, a couple lines of it. Each one should become, as it were, a Christ to the other, that we might become Christ to one another, that Christ might be the same in all, and that we may all be truly Christians. A Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and in the neighbor. Otherwise, he's not a Christian. He lives in God through faith, in his neighbor through love, but by faith he is caught up beyond himself into God. By love he descends beneath himself into his neighbor, yet he always is remaining in God and in his love. So he also is presenting here in this discussion, the theological man, uh, a concept that gives us a new insight as to what we mean by the imago dei, being in the image of God. Luther is saying, 
The image, quote, the image of God consists in the ability that has been distributed to the human being to respond to God's speech. But this ability is thwarted by our human capacity for unfaithfulness, resulting in glorifying ourselves again and again instead of continuing in that image of God and thus misusing what was promised to us in our use of our reason and our language that now become tools of being self-serving instead of God-serving. But this means, unlike the, the, the Moderna, for whom the meaning of humanity ends and begins with yourself and with your setting in the world, for Luther, it's the opposite. Uncovering the Imago Dei in persons directs us, I contend, to revelation and not to anthropology, per se, as our beginning and endpoints in understanding the theological nature of humanity, unlike the anthropomorphic shift we see in modernity. Well, what then may be some of the main takeaways which engage the larger implication of Luther's view in contrast with that of humanity? Let me just name four or five quickly. First, this portrayal we've given of Luther's uh, theological man is not a formal or a systematic definition of Imago Dei, as we would find, for example, in Aquinas or maybe Calvin, but it's an existence uh, concretely grounded in the promise of God, which comes from the preaching event, the preaching of Christ. Uh, it's always specific to each one who takes responsibility for hearing, that is for faith, and hearing and faith go hand in glove. Uh, this presence of God in humanity and in all creatures is only acknowledged by humans amid the dialectic of unfaith and faith, of unpreached God and preached God. The promise which constitutes humanity is available, that is, only for those who hear in such a way that they do not remain deaf. Second, the inference from this speech that the whole world is filled with speaking is that our creation ex nihilo for Luther finds its ultimate meaning only in the light of our justification. Now, this is saying uh, that humans are not created for self-realization, as Marx's ideal of man and the worker, but we are created instead by God as a speech act, a dialogue between God who speaks and the creature who answers. To say that our existence is grounded in the gospel is more than just saying our salvation depends upon an experience of pardon at some point along the way uh, through Christ. But rather it's to declare that our very lives as humans is solely gift, the gift of our Lord Christ. And that such a humanity stands as the ultimate contradiction to the self-made person. Now, he also says, third, that uh, one's turning from unfaith to faith involves a conversion. A turning from self toward God and toward all creatures. Since the creator allows his voice to be heard through all creatures. This turning to the world seems to indicate I now exist not as a, as a Christian, not just as an individual. But now, for the first time, as a member of God's world of creatures, who together are offering praise to God in the presence of one another. So there's this deep communal sense in Luther's theology that's often overlooked in later Protestant individualism. Uh, and only then do we uh, avoid that idolatrous curve toward self that constituted our sorrow. Fourth, Luther will also factor in the role of Satan in fashioning theological man he does not think those who struggle with demonic forces are thereby sub-Christian people, but he says, as soon as the word of God permeates you, the devil will find a way to afflict you so as to make you a real doctor and a real theologian. He's talking personally there. 
uh, and will uh, teach you by his temptations to seek the word of God fervently and to love it. Uh, so, fifth, Luther is thinking outside the box when he also is rejecting the long-standing Roman view of grace in terms of a substance sacramentally infused into a person's soul. But rather, he sees it as a relationship that's now made available to us by grace, a beneficium of goodwill, a new dignity of relationship we now sustain with our creator for the first time through Christ. And this insight would reflect this Pauline emphasis he would also have that our salvation is imputed to us as grace, not imparted. Now finally, the assertion here is that in spite of Luther's connections to late medieval nominalism, he was not, in the final analysis, a modern man. Modernity would not choose to speak of a freedom in Christ. It seems to much prefer a freedom from the brutal necessity of having to speak in that ugly way of a God who stoops to become crucified on a cross. This via moderna came into its high expression with the Enlightenment with Immanuel Kant. Kant referred to God as though he were marginalized to function as a numinal presupposition posited to allow for the fact that humans are creatures of duty who invariably live in their best moments with a sense of obligation defined by the categorical imperative. I can, therefore I must. But in his mind, we can now wipe the slate clean of any dogmas which we would call explicitly Christian because once modernity sweeps away the authority of biblical revelation, there would be little from keeping the post-enlightenment era from ultimately giving way to the triumph of a self-referenced nihilism. By contrast, I find that Luther speaks of the meaning of the cross for us humans in a distinctly profound way. It is, we have our status as Christians not because the Son of God remains oblivious to us or innocent of our sins and leaves me with the burden of finding my way to actualize the moral life on this earth, but rather, Luther explains much better in his Galatians commentary when he says, Christ intentionally sustained the person of a sinner and a thief, not of one, but of all, all those who are guilty of death and everlasting damnation. For on the cross... He is not an innocent person without sins. He's not there now the Son of God, born of the Virgin. Instead, he appears as a sinner, one who has and carries the sin of Paul, a blasphemer, the sin of Peter, who denied Christ, the sin of David, who was an adulterer and a murderer. Why? That he might make satisfaction for them with his own blood. Our church, he said, wants to make Christ unprofitable to us. And even a tyrant who is angry with us. So the only thing left for us then is we must keep Christ wrapped up in our sins. Even as he is wrapped in our flesh and blood. The only consolation for godly persons is so to wrap ourselves in Christ with our sins, with my sins, the sins of the whole world. Because beholding him in this way shall vanquish all vain opinions we may want to entertain about such matters as justification by our own works. But to unwrap Christ, to strip him from our, of our sins, to make him innocent, and to overwhelm ourselves with our sins and our guilt, and to look upon the, these, and not in Christ, but in ourselves, is to take Christ completely away and to make him utterly unprofitable to us. On this basis, Luther would tell us that contra the modernist position, 
A Christian is enabled to live a redeemed life by the theology of the cross far more than by any self-help panacea, including Kant's uh, categorical imperative, any such thing that would masquerade for the gospel. For Luther, and here I conclude, uh, this would be as a Wesleyan too, I think, I would say this, it is only in the freedom of that love exchange we have with Christ that you and I will be equipped to share Christ's incredible grace with our fellow human creatures. In ecstasy and joy, even amid suffering and death in this life. And this is the exchange that distinguishes the Christian from all others. Well, I just remembered something. I think I've left you stranded on the shore of Europe while I went into this lecture. And uh, pardon, uh, let's come back, back in the Soviet era of 1983 behind the Iron Curtain. Don't stay there. Uh, we may now return home. But now, five years later, I will decide, and I do this, to go, take another trip back to that distant land with a different class of Asbury students at that time. And then we go to the Luther home again, same place in the little village of Mansfeld. And would you know, that same woman that talked to us is still there. And she's still reading her, her little script to the tourists that are going by. And after she finished, I just stepped up to her and I said, do you remember me? Do you remember this group? We were here five years ago, and another class was here, and you shared with us your personal faith in Jesus. Are you still here? And you're still here today, aren't you? And she replies in German and says, Ach ja, I well remember. Excuse me, I have a suggestion. Could you stay just a little while? Well, what for? Well, it's not easy to say. You see, two years ago, our pastor was taken away. He's in jail now. We haven't had any worship, any preaching in two years. And you're here now with your class. Uh, could you just go with me? And I'll take you to our little church. And I'll call my people together. It won't take long. And you could offer them even a brief word in the script of the, from the scriptures in the pulpit. And your class is about the right size to, for our choir loft. And they could maybe offer some hymns of praise as well. And so... Uh, would you do it? And I looked at the class and I said, would you like to do this? And they said, oh yes. And so we went and the people arrived and I preached and the students sang and we all rejoiced together with God's people, a people living in darkness on a warm summer day in 1988, which proved to be just one year before that dreaded wall came down. The theology of the cross was doing its work. Returning home, I read some lines from one of Luther's sermons from that early era, and here's a nugget from it I'd like for you to take with you today as we remember the precarious days that marked the launching of the Protestant Reformation. On this important anniversary day, a time when our nation today and world are again reeling from strife, civil and ecclesial at many levels, Luther's voice speaks anew concerning Jesus' promise to his disciples, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives. Note what Luther says about that. The world calls it peace when all suffering is cut off and sundered from us. For example, if one being poor thinks, if I could just throw off poverty, I would have peace. Or another says, is dying and says, if I could just throw off death, I should have peace. But that is not the peace which Christ gives. But rather, he allows the evil which is laid upon a person to lie upon that person still and to continue oppressing. And God does not take it away. Instead, he uses another device. He changes the person. 
and sunders the person from the evil, not the evil from the person. And this is how it's done. We discover what it means to be human when in the grip of suffering, we find ourselves through the message of this Christ that there is life in the midst of dying, that there is peace in the midst of adversity, and that that is why it is such a peace that for Paul, it is surpassing understanding. Yes, on this quinquacentennial of the Protestant Reformation, we who look to Christ are also called to face adversity in our lives and in our time, and that is all the more reason for us to hear the promise of the gospel, even as Luther's witness to the living word of God shines anew in our midst this hour, I pray. It does so amid a desperate world, but perhaps one that's also waiting to be caught up by a faith beyond itself, one that's overflowing in his love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.